Hello, listeners. This is Carl. I wanted to drop a quick note at the front of the show. One, to apologize for how late I am getting this to you, and to also note that uh, this was recorded quite a while ago. And because of that, we talk a little bit about being out and about, and that is not something that's happening right now. And uh, I wanted from all of us at the Crusader to say we hope you are healthy and safe, and thank you so much for listening. Hey, this is Epi. Welcome to the Crusader Podcast, a show about the Castle of Crusades role-playing game. Alia Acta Est, the Dias Cast. Welcome back, Crusaders. It's episode 16 of the Crusader Podcast, and we're here to talk to you today about the treasures that we use in our CNC games. But first, we actually got some mail, so we're going to jump right over to Troll Mail. And I think Carl's going to kick us off with that. Yeah, we have an email from Jonathan Filiumini. That was not right. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to just barrel forward. <laughs> Close enough. And Jonathan writes, <laughs> thanks for taking my email. Longtime listener, first time caller here. First off, big thanks to Jesse for the great game at Gen Con 2019. Sorry we were so damn late. Secondly, would you be able to talk a bit about encounter design? Clearly just throwing increasing numbers of enemies at a party. Nor does it work well when characters immediately gang up on the big bad. How would you recommend filling out an encounter to make it challenging and not just a slog? Additionally, what would any of you say to tackling on some auras or other automatic effects to loan big bads to make up for an unfavorable action economy? As an example, in a certain granddaddy of dungeon crawls, don't go down the well, <laughs> a god of the undead has additional combat relevant abilities to mitigate the fact that there are four to six heroes against it. Thanks again for the great show, and I'm looking forward to the next episode, John. Well, thanks, John. Hmm. Yeah, thank you, John. It was good playing at Gen Con with you and your friends. And uh, don't beat yourself up for being late because it's, it's huge there and just... Figuring out where we were, I'm sure, was an ordeal, but it was a great time. So thanks for thanks for coming for that. Well, I guess it depends on what the encounter is consisting of, because based on the monster, creature, or band of humans that you're using, um, that can lend itself into things that you can do to either beef it up or pull it back, depending on you know what your your players' makeup are. Um, I know one of the things that people talk about a lot in OSR is the Tucker's Cobalts. <laughs> you know, Cobalts on the face of it are, you know, little quarter hit die creatures. They seem like they're, you know, weenie. They wouldn't do much. But you can take them and have them with, you know, warrens, traps, all kinds of things that these creatures do to overcome the fact that they are tiny and easily killed singularly and, you know, beef up an encounter that way. You don't have to have just more of the same, but they could set snares. They could, you know, ha be tactical. Um, there's lots of outside influences that you can bring to bear. Yeah. One of the things I've mentioned on other podcasts, um, is that, for instance, in a Cobalt Warren, 
there is no reason at all that doorways or passageways have to be six feet tall. I mean, they're cobalts, three or four feet. Now, suddenly, just going down a simple passageway after some cobalts has suddenly become a lot more difficult. Also a lot more memorable. Like, so when we think about encounter design, part of this is balance, but part of this is what makes the encounter interesting. If you're on your hands and knees crawling through a tunnel, suddenly you've changed the way they're thinking of the encounter. And now it's becoming this kind of like moment in an adventure where things even if the kobolds don't present any much more of a threat than they would have before, you've put them in a position of disadvantage that now makes it a little bit more interesting. There's a little bit more terrain involved, a little bit more adventure involved in just the combat encounter. Mm-hmm. Using natural elements is also, I think, a good strategy. Um, fighting the big bad becomes a lot more difficult if the floor is lava between you and the big bad. Or if the room is flooded or there's a river between you and the big bad or something like that. Yeah. Where you're dealing with the terrain as much as um, the big bad guy. Although when he, his question regarding making it less of a slog, when you have a single big bad, they by definition are usually going to be theoretically anyway, capable of taking on several PCs at the same time. I mean, that's why they're the big bad, right? Well, part of that is just a math equation. You got to figure out the amount of hit points it will need to sustain the enough damage to get enough of its own attacks in. Um, you know, but I guess if it feels like you're just welling on this thing and it gets one attack and you're welling on this thing and it gets one attack, that can, you know, even if it uh, mathematically works out, it can feel a little uninteresting. Uh, my homeschool murder hobo group uh, uh, who are playing BX uh, D&D, we fought a um, white dragon recently. And one of the things uh, we did with that fight is it was over a icy lake. And so there were holes and it would dive down and get back into the icy water and then pop up somewhere else in the terrain and attack from there. Oh, so kind of like a whack-a-mole. Yes, it was a, it was a white dragon whack-a-mole. <laughs> Uh, yes. But what it did is it broke up the encounter and created some tension because it comes out of one of six holes and, and whatever hole you were nearest to suddenly became very suspicious and you got really nervous that it would <laughs> come out and breathe all of its frost breath on you. Um, fishing gone horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, that's now what they're suggesting here with the oars um you know, that sounds a lot like uh, layer actions in 5e, which is something you could port to see and see no problem. Um, giving your uh, big bad monsters additional attacks that kind of act as interrupts. Or giving the big bad magic items mm-hmm. that might be part of their treasure. That can be a way of trying to even the playing field. Hmm. Yeah, and segues into the topic of our show. Does it? <laughs> it does. What a coincidence. But yeah, it's kind of ironic talking about that. There's so many modules where, you know, a creature or someone has this kick-ass magic item that you can find in their lair. Why aren't they using it when they are fighting you? Why is it locked in a trunk under their bed when they could have been using it to kick your ass when you came into their room? You know, it is. everybody knows when you take a vorpal sword out of the plastic, it loses half its value. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I think there's maybe a reason why in fantasy role-playing games, the classic villainous uh, monster encounters are either things with magic or things with breath weapons because that allows them to take on large groups at a time and possibly damage all of those at once. If it's a wizard throwing fireballs, it doesn't matter that you have four to six heroes. (laughs) (laughs) They're all getting fireballed. Or even the ubiquitous claw claw bite. Right. So thanks for writing, John. Yeah, thank you, John. Um, again, we love hearing from you guys, so please send us emails um, at the Crusader Podcast at gmail.com. All right, do we want to talk about what we've been doing recently in gaming? Hmm, sure. Liz wants to. Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure I do. <laughs> well, Mike and I have been playing in um, our bi-weekly-ish uh, second edition AD&D game. And that's been, I mean, we had to stop for a while over the Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's segment. We're kind of getting back in again, but it's the usual thing of when can we find a day that everybody is available? Because like, well, what about this weekend? You know, I can come, I can come. Oh, no, I'm not going to be in town that weekend. It's like, good. Um, Six people but, do. Yeah, so, but we're kind of starting to get back on track with that again. And we're also doing a supers game that we play about once a month with a friend of ours. Um, We finally started up in Mike's Victorious game again, just a couple of weeks ago, as of this recording, which had been on hiatus for a few months as well. And... It's not technically gaming gaming, but I am doing the layout for the Swords and Wizardry box set that is currently on Kickstarter at the moment. So if you decide to back that Kickstarter and get the really cool box set, the insides of it will have been done by me. That's all for me. All for us, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So with the... uh homeschool group that I run games for, uh, we have uh, suspended the BX campaign uh, after the defeat of our first dragon. We, we took a break from that and we're taking turns running different games. Um, so I have uh, some of the kids interested in uh, running games. So we have them pick out a system and they'll run it for a week and then we'll switch over and switch over and switch over. Um, uh, so... Uh, on top of that, I started a home game with my uh, wife and two kids, and we're using Castles and Crusades. My Ooh. daughter kept Night the Night that she had during our Castles and Crusades one-shot we played recently. Uh, but my son created a new character, a half-orc monk named Sumi, which is, I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> my my six-year-old uh, son, for some reason, has the best character names. <laughs> he had one named Knives, didn't he? Something he had like. a, a fighter named Swords. Swords, that's what it was. Yeah, and then he also had a, um, uh, he had an elven druid named Oregano, which is just Ooh, so good. I love that. <laughs> oh, you should, man. You should uh, uh, commission a random name generator from him. <laughs> Yeah. A long time ago, I explained uh, on on Facebook how my son tells jokes. 
And a good friend of mine created a random joke generator based on how he tells jokes. And he tells jokes by giving you a totally innocuous sit-up and this just saying poop, farts, or butts, or some mixture of those things. <laughs> so it could be like, <laughs> why why do uh, chickens cross the road? Well, poop farts. Why? That's that's the reason. I guarantee that book would sell. <laughs> well, the the generator is still online. You can <laughs> you can go to a website and generate random jokes, as told by my son. I hope um, that's going to be in the show notes because I sure, want to go there now. Sure, <laughs> I want to go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> my friends going to be like, "Why is this getting so many hits?" All of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Um, You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's pretty much all the gaming I've done lately. Other than like running through my head of what to run for North Texas, I still have not submitted any games for North Texas. And I just can't decide because I want to run all the games, but I also want to be able to play in some games. So I'm trying to manage my time well. (laughs) Well, it's not going to be any shock that I say you should run Discos and Dragons, but you're <laughs> probably starting to get a little tired of it. I understand that, but I still think that's the coolest one. <laughs> I second that. Yeah, I will probably run Discos and Dragons. I will probably run uh, at least two games. So if I if I had my druthers, I'd be running seven games, but then I wouldn't have a lot of time to play in games. <laughs> I want to run, I, the first uh, time I went there, I, I have a hack of Castle and Crusades that I've recently named the Red Box Hack, where I just strip it down to kind of like old school box set version of Castles and Crusades, where it's race is class and it's uh, just a little bit more streamlined. Um, and uh, I ran that the first time I went to North Texas using uh, uh, um, Keep on the Borderlands. And so I might do that again because I did that at Arkansas RPG Con uh, this year and it went really well. All right, I guess I'll go on to me. Yeah, Jesse, what have you been doing in... Uh, uh, hey, Jesse. Hi. Hey, what have you been doing in gaming lately? <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been doing a lot of gaming. We've been playing our ongoing Castles and Crusades game at the Friendly Local Gaming Store on Mondays. Um, my cleric, if you remember last time, had lost his cleric powers. He was just a terrible yeah. fighter. But I've been shopping around for a new god... And I've been instrumental in uh, getting rid of an evil snake cult in the city that we're in. So my new perspective god, I think he likes me. And I've been able to cast a couple spells here and there. So I think I'll be having my spells back soon. And we also play alternating. um, We play Gamma World, too. And I've been having a great time with that. I am a frog mutant. And I float above <laughs> the ground, and I have pyrokinesis, so I can light people on fire from quite a distance. You are a flaming, floating frog. Well, toad, not frog. Okay. Toad. <laughs> so it's and... not silly at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I got caught up in the old school essentials hype that's been going on recently. So I've been playing BX on Friday nights. I'm actually running that game. So that's also been fun. Um, I do got to mention, though, we lost one of our fellow gamers at the game store. He played in our Monday night games. Um, So it's sad sad when that happens. Uh, We only got to know him for about six months, but he was one of the most active people in the group, and we'll really miss him. 
So shout out to Bill. Sorry that to hear that. Sad. That is sad. So moving on to magic items. Um, obviously, it's a big part of any fantasy role-playing game that has magic in it. Maybe not so much if you run like a, a real low magic setting. In which case, boo! <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's magic items. They run the whole gamut, right? Really small utilitarian items all the way up to vorpal blades and bags of holding and, and all of that. So I think we should talk about first maybe some experiences that, that we've all had with magic items um, as a GM or also as a player. Oh, I think that's a great thing to talk about. Uh, as a GM, and this is a fairly recent development, when I run games now, I really don't hide the magical effects of items uh, unless it has some point within the narrative like if you find some potions and you don't know what they do that's fine but if you're swinging around a magical sword and you have every reason to believe it's magical i'm just gonna say treat that as a plus two sword and you add two to your rolls because i have found recently uh that hiding those numbers doesn't really keep people's mind off the math they just start doing the math you know, mentally based off of die rolls versus successes and going, okay, now I can figure out what kind of sword this is. Cause, cause I rolled a 15 and that hit and it normally wouldn't have hit or whatever. Um, so I, that's something that I've recently changed about the way I run games and run magic items where I kind of just put the mechanics out in front of them. Whereas, uh, in past games, I may have tried to keep that more, close to the vest and not let them know and have them feeling like the, like I'm adding to the fill of mystery, but I found that I really wasn't, I was just adding to the mental math they were doing. I think also it, it kind of takes away the, when you don't know what your item does, it kind of takes away from like the excitement of finding a magic item because I like to have magic items, not that common. They're, they're fairly rare. And it's like, you find this sword you can tell it's magical because it has a dim glow to it or whatever, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. And then they either forget about it or they've got to spend all this time to figure out what it is. And when they do figure out what it is, it's it's never as exciting as it would have been in the moment of when they found it. So I kind of do the same thing. I let them know. I, I expected I this to be a con- from. Okay, okay. So yeah, somebody tell me I'm wrong because I expected this to be controversial. <laughs> I I can see where you're coming from, but I also kind of feel like, at least with some items, you should have the mystery and the fun of finding out. Yeah, with you know things like weapons, it's usually pretty easy to tell whether eventually whether or not you've got a plus two or a plus one or whatever. But with some of the more original magical items, you know, it can it can be a fun part of the adventure to determine what exactly, you know, this carved scarab that you have is or something like that. I, I think it I think it takes something away from the game to just say, okay, you found a scarab of protection. It's like, what? That's it? You know <laughs> I, I wanted a story. <laughs> Yeah, it would it would depend on the effects of the magic item. If it was something that has more of a effect on the narrative, 
then I would want to make that part of the narrative. But if it's something that has an effect on the mechanics, and I know those aren't always completely separate, but if it's just affecting the mechanics, that part, you know, I'm not afraid to put in front of players. Uh, so, for example, if it were a plus two sword that um, had an extra magical effect, when they start swinging that sword, that's when I would say, okay, you feel like you're striking more true. This sword's lighter than any sword or better balanced than any sword you've ever used before. Add plus two to your rolls when you use this sword. But that extra magical effect it might have then would have to be discovered further on. And if it was something like, um, you know, a figurine of wondrous power or something like that, I wouldn't want to necessarily just say, oh, you found this and you know what it is. That's something that has a narrative effect that's not just a plus two to a die roll. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Mostly. <laughs> Carl, that was yeah. clear, concise, and well presented. You're wrong. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> Glad we got that clear. <laughs> well, I, I see your point. It certainly makes it easier from a DM perspective, and it avoids some of the tediousness of the identify spell, et cetera, et cetera. I always felt, though, I always let my bards, whenever somebody plays a bard, have that as a bard ability, the legend lore, to figure out certain weapons and stuff and give stories and thus pluses. Um. And you were talking about the mechanics, and that is true unless it's a cursed weapon. Mm -hmm. Because then the player may figure it out, but the character is still convinced this is an amazing item, you know, no matter what it's doing to the map. Yeah. And that's something you almost have to rely on the role playing of the player at the table. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, that might not be as easy as if you had, you know, older people more willing to do the role playing aspect of things. Uh, we were playing a game a long time ago where my brother had a cursed sword, and the cursed sword. The curse was uh, it makes him feel invincible, uh, which is a pretty hefty curse. <laughs> and yeah. I remember. I remember him just wading into a sea of monsters and just ready to fight. And, and we were like, he's just killing his character. What's going on? Because we didn't know that that was the curse of his sword. He just role-played mm -hmm. it. They, the dungeon master told him. Uh, and so we were very confused on why he was just killing off his character. Uh, but it's he was just role-playing the curse. It was really cool. I've been in several games where DMs or GMs or CKs, have had certain potions in their campaign world that do certain things be a certain color. Like, healing potions were always a warm amber color. Yes, I do that. That's not something I do in my games. I'm actually fairly resistant to that. Uh, and I remember... It I think I was, uh, it was during adventure. I, I used to run adventures league five E for a local game store and I had a blue healing potion in it. And somebody got so mad at me because healing potions in the official five E rules, they say something about them being red. Uh, and I was like, I mean, they're 
making a magic potion. They can't do food coloring. They don't. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> and, and considering, yeah, I mean, you could even say different people have different recipes. I mean, my God, how many different Alfredo sauces are there in the world? I mean, I don't know, but I'm willing to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on a quest. But I mean, even though I've gone back and forth on the concept myself, but that is something that some people have done to at least, you know, you don't have to worry about constantly identifying potions, certain potions. Before I said I was really lenient with magic items. I'm not with potions, though. So usually when they find a potion, I'll describe it and I keep notes of the different potions and what they smell like and what color they are. But I don't like repeat them constantly. Like I don't say like, well, you find a healing potion. You because they should know what a healing potion is at that point. I describe what it looks like to them and it's up to them to remember, oh, that's a healing potion. Oh, but they that's... tend to have a relatively uniform appearance yes. or smell. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I could see some cool moments happen uh, from doing that because if you're like, uh, whatever, you see across the room on a shelf some red potions and you can smell the smell of cinnamon in the air, you go, oh, I think those are healing potions. I remember that from last time. Or it's, you know, hot damn or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's 90 90 proof. (laughs) That's a potion of delusion of healing. Yeah. You don't actually heal anything, but you you don't care anymore. So much better. (laughs) I don't even think I remembered hot damn was a thing since like. (laughs) (laughs) I used to drink professionally. (laughs) And he's from Arkansas and I'm from Mississippi. So, you know, (laughs) we know hot damn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, As far as potions in general. No, I haven't done that. Yes to healing potions, because I'm kind of a weenie DM, and so (laughs) I'll let my healing potions be the same all the time for people to be able to figure it out. But yeah, other potions, they will not consistently be the same color or the same smell or whatever. Um, But I'll I'll give them the healing it's like you can figure out that it's a healing. Everything else you got to experiment and find out. I feel like there's go, always two. Go ahead, Jesse. No, you go ahead. Whatever you got to say, say it. I'll wait. <laughs> um, no, I was going to say that uh, brings up the next question I have to do with potions. Specifically, do you allow people to test potions? Get a little bit of a taste on their lips and see what happens. Yes. Eh, depends on the effect. If it's relatively minor, maybe, but if it's an important potion, no, you gotta chug that sucker. I let them take a test. I'm nice, though. I I think I might be too nice. I'm kind of a nice one, too. But yeah, like a taste, you're only going to get the very faintest version of the effect. So, you'll have a pretty good idea, probably, what it does, but... On the other hand, if it's a poison, usually you don't need an awful lot to mm-hmm. be in a bad way. Dabble, do you? That's right. <laughs> Little goes a long way, like oregano. Like the old oregano. <laughs> I let people test potions, but, and it depends, again, I agree with you, Mike, it depends on the effect of the potion, because uh, 
especially if it's not something that kind of like builds on itself. Um, but not only does that effect have to be observed. So like if it's a potion of strength, yeah, you might feel a little stronger for a second, but it's not necessarily going to increase your strength at all. It also weakens the rest of the potion. So now that potion of strength is going to be a die roll with a minus because wow. you've already taken a sip out of it. Um, not a, not minus to strength, but it's going to be instead of like one to six, now it's one to five. Um, Man, that's harsh. Uh, <laughs> um, um, I just say there was no effect, no noticeable effect, but you know the potion's still a potion. But you know. so, for example, this happened in a Discos and Dragons game. The first one I ran that uh, Mike and Liz played in, and Mike Ooh. tested a potion, and it was a potion of invisibility. So it turned like his tongue invisible because that's just all he got down. Um, so when somebody else used that potion, like they were a floating tongue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that part of the potion has already taken an effect. Sanity check. <laughs> I think you should win all initiative encounters <laughs> simply because your opponents would be like, what the hell is that? <laughs> the whole party wins initiative because, yeah, all the monsters are going, holy crap, what is that? <laughs> But it was a tongue. <laughs> it's a tongue that hit me with a broadsword. What's happening? <laughs> I didn't see a broadsword, but the tongue. I gotta say one thing on potions, real quick. And it's, yes, I think there's always there's two people in every single group, and it's people that are overly cautious about potions, and then there's the <laughs> one person that's like, I drink it. They just chug I'll it. I'll drink both of them at the same time. Yeah. And yeah, I that, mean that does pay off sometimes, but sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But I've experienced that a lot in gaming. It seems like there's there's always that uh that range of people. Yeah, there's the extremely tactical, cautious, you know, competitive player, and then there's the one What's that? I'm gonna jump in it. I've said many times in the past, convention Liz plays far differently than home campaign Liz because convention Liz will drink from all the pools and, you know, jump in to see what happens because I'm at a convention. My character is disposable. I can take risks and I don't have to worry about it affecting the campaign. Um, um, one caveat. You did not play that way in the AD&D tournament. I did not. Well, we were we were all trying to win. Yeah. But, you know, if it's just a one-shot game, you've signed up for this session, there aren't going to be any other sessions following, you know, you don't have to worry about it. And you can be a little freer in your play. And it's like, well, things I would not necessarily do in my home game, it's like, I'm I'm going to be a little more reckless and, you know, See if some of these gambles actually pay off. I would drink the potion at a convention. Totally. It's like, I don't know what that is, but I'm drinking it. <laughs> it might be healing. I need it. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a lot about potions. How do you guys go about um, awarding magical items in your games? My favorite thing is is honestly rolling on the charts in the Monsters and Treasure books. 
I, Me I think too. it's exciting because I don't know what they're going to get. They don't know what they're going to get. Um, I love doing that. And I, I've had it work out in their favor. I mean, they got a staff of resurrection one time right after one of their people died. And in that game, resurrection was really difficult. And they had to go on this long sea voyage to find somebody to resurrect wholesome Brad, one of their, their dwarf cleric. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, they found it. And it was just as much a surprise to me as it was to them. And it completely changed the course of the campaign, which I think is really exciting. I have the player's role. I say, look in the treasure, roll a D percent and see what oh. you found. Yeah, I go around the table. Okay, you roll a percentage, then you roll a percentage, and then a D10 or whatever it is. I don't yeah, do any awesome. of the rolling myself. Samesies. The only problem idea. with that is... If you roll up that plus five sword in the monster's treasure, and the monster was a humanoid, we get back to, why didn't he use the sword? That's a good point. Most of my players aren't that smart, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky! <laughs> Don't let them listen to this episode, because they'll yeah. start asking questions now. <laughs> and they'll get hey. mad at you. <laughs> Like I don't know. I think dummies. they'd be very happy to know that the monster didn't use the plus five sword. Yeah, that's true. Like, who's asking that question? Well, why wasn't he murdering us with that? Well, <laughs> maybe he was just really stupid. Yeah. I don't know. I, I am. I am firmly in the camp of I want to plan out what is in the treasure beforehand. Because, yeah, sometimes rolling randomly works out really well. Sometimes it just makes everything really wonky. And mm-hmm. you you wind up painting yourself into a corner that you can't get out of now. Uh, you, only, you only paint yourself into a corner if you read out truly what they rolled. I mean, you could always pick, the, <laughs> pick an adjacent item it's if it doesn't so make sense. lie is what you're saying. Yeah, be your players. When I said I my just, players weren't that smart, I did not mean my <laughs> current players. <laughs> I meant previous ones. And oh, Jesse no, has never, Jesse has never lied to you. Never. <laughs> Ever. That's right. Um, That's right. This is Jesse Bailey, and he approves this message. I I just paint myself into the corner <laughs> and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, sometimes... I've always felt that being a castle keeper, um, doing the random rolls is kind of your bit of play as well, because you don't know what's going to happen any more than the players. However, as Liz has pointed out, I have been too many times when a random roll has totally derailed things because they, the players got a robe of the archmage. <laughs> first <lighting>. level <laughs> yeah and it's this I, I've actually built my own um, charts that are based roughly on the level of the party cool. at, at the given time I mean it's not 100% you can either slip to an upper or lower tier because you know there are weird things you find sometimes but but you don't get you know the CNC equivalent of the Eye of Vecna or something in that giant centipede's you know nest. See, I think that's cool, though. I agree with you, but I want to say one thing, and it's like, if you're a fighter, level one, and you roll up this awesome flaming sword, that's really cool. Until like 
this level seven fighter that's also in the town finds out that this puny level one fighter has this flaming sword and he decides he wants it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the one rings at the bottom of the riverbank, you know, like (laughs) it's cool to find that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, again, I, I, I really enjoy not knowing what's going to happen and then finding out and trying to make it work. Well, anyway, what about other types of treasure? Yeah, I mean, not all treasure is material stuff. Um, it's like you could have a local noble grant some minor non-landed titles for something that the party did. Um, a scribe can give you some rare knowledge. Um so you can kind of think you can think outside of the box a little with your treasure, and it doesn't have to all be just gold and gems and the occasional magic item. Or it's you know kind of a it's not as it's more valuable than it initially appears. One of the dungeons I had uh, there was a silver eagle, you know, like the old Roman legionnaires. The legions had the eagles, and you know, in silver. It was maybe, you know, 100 silver pieces. But because of its antiquity, if you've actually got it considered by an antiquarian, it was worth up to 3,000 gold pieces to a collector because of its age and historical import. You know, so there's a way of giving treasure that maybe on initial viewing doesn't seem like much. And if you just melt it down, it isn't, but... (laughs) A little extra effort, and that can really pay off. In an old game I played with my kids, they were called they were named protectors of the realm by uh, uh, the king of the realm or queen of the realm, uh, and uh, yeah, that blew their minds. Like, just the, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with Liz there that titles, like, I don't know what it is about it, like, it means nothing. Like, but you get this fake title in this fake game, and you're like, awesome, I've <laughs> succeeded. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, you can even make it mean a little bit of something, you know, whenever you're in that particular kingdom or duchy or whatever, you know, because you have, you know, protector of the realm status, you know, innkeepers will want to give you free drinks or it's like here, have this meal on the house, you know, people are just so happy to see you and so impressed with what you did that, you know, you get little occasional bennies from the various townsfolk that you encounter, you know, which doesn't, you know, it doesn't add up to a whole lot, but you know, if you're on the road and you're looking for a a good bed at an inn and they're more than happy to give you one, you know, that can be awesome. (laughs) It opens up another aspect of the game too. We had a recent character become a mayor of a town on accident basically <laughs> and he's going to have to deal with that you know is, is what's he going to do he's a mayor of the small fishing village now he has duties and responsibilities or he's got to find a way out of it so I, I think that's always a fun fun thing too once you get a title i mean <laughs> you have a title you're a big shot right so people are looking up to you for something right and yeah and medieval titles as you note have responsibilities attached to them and, you know, oh, you're a lord now. Well, that's great, but you have a mayor, you have villages, you have farmers who look for you for protection, so on and so forth. 
there's a web comic in there somewhere. Durag Orkslayer, the accidental mayor. That <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> I think lands are also a good non-material treasure also. Mm-hmm. And segues into possibly more adventures. I've, I've yeah, because then it's your before. lands the bandits are attacking, not just yeah. Joe Schmo's <laughs> land. Or one of your villages, they were trying to dig a new well and found a dungeon full of monsters. Which is now terrorizing them. Better go save them. Exactly, because they're not going to hire adventurers if they are the adventurers. Yeah. That's what... No, I don't know what I was going to say. That's what... Uh... Mm-hmm. Never mind. <laughs> Do we want to talk yeah, about... And... Oh. No, go ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, I can if you want, but I was, I was changing the subject. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, when it comes to awarding land to your players, characters, um, depending on how they react to that, you know, that can let you know what it is they're expecting out of your campaign, um, because some groups are going to, some groups are going to see the land as like a millstone around their neck. You know, they like being murder hobos. They like traveling all over the place and the land ties them down to one location and they're not happy about it. Um, Other groups are going to think this is awesome. We have a base of operations to work from. You know, it's um, a sense of stability that we can always go back to in between adventures. Um, So in that sense, you can use treasure to figure out what excites my group of players. What do I get the most positive reaction from when they get these things? And then I kind of know, okay, I think I have a handle on what they're wanting. So I'll try to do more of this because they get a, they get way more excited about this as opposed to that. Totally agree. My characters don't really care if they find a thousand gold pieces. That's cool. But if you give them a broom of flying or something like that, something unexpected, they love that. Again, magic items, like any other treasure or land or whatnot, tailored to what your players are going to want. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to cater to their whims, but don't don't give them a path that they're obviously just going to go screw it and run off, you know? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever catered to a whim, Mike? Once. Then I realized what I was doing and quickly stopped it. <laughs> <laughs> I, that That's not entirely true. I Frequently, I, I've given players treasures and stuff that their players have, that they claim their players might want. And then I use it to make their lives a living hell. But that's, that's <laughs> different. Well, Mike tends to be very sandbox in his style of running games. So he'll throw things out there and let us react and go off and do, you know, what strikes our fancy. So I guess in that sense, he's sort of catering to whims because he gives choices. And if we decide to do something that is not necessarily what he initially planned on, he doesn't try to push us back to the original plan. He's like, well, okay, let's do this then. You know? <laughs> Don't want to do that? We'll do this. So Carl, why were you changing the subject? 
do we want to talk about some specific magic items, either that we've made up or that we uh, uh, found in uh, Castles of Crusades? I'm cool with that. Sure. Yep. I guess I will start by mentioning a magic item from the Monsters and Treasures book that was in the SRD, but was changed slightly. I've always liked cursed items because I'm a GM. But beyond that, I like them, especially not when they're not just, you know, okay, minus one sword, yawn. I mean, really interesting stuff. And this one is called a medallion of thought projection. Yeah. Now, it's in the SRD. Um, what it basically does is in a straight line, you know, you think it's a medallion of ESP, but it's really projecting your thoughts. However, the CNC version is a little different. The original one, at least from AD&D, you could still read other people's thoughts. You just didn't, weren't aware that other people were reading yours. Um, this one's interesting because the medallion comes up with random thoughts and tells them to you and makes you think it's coming. You're reading the minds of those around you. <laughs> this could be hours of Castle Keeper fun. So is the medallion alive then? If it's choosing what to... It's what e to give you? It's either doing that or another thing I came up with was maybe it like records thoughts from like a week earlier. And then when it tops out, it starts shooting them at you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this would be wonderful because, you know, you're like standing near a half ogre or something. And instead of, a, and you know, you get the thought, wow, you're hot. <laughs> I did not want to know that. <laughs> I'm not wearing underwear. You know, hours of fun. This could be. I, I so I really love the the CNC twist on that. It's great. I'm I'm kind of hoping that the thing is actually sentient in some way. When jesters die, they get reincarnated as medallions. Of <laughs> so yeah, that's mine. Next. When we were kids, my little brother, uh, he was playing a barbarian forever. And I think he might have been like eight, nine tops at the time. It's time to play a barbarian. Exactly. Um, and I, he remembers it that the, the sword he found was in uh, <laughs> the lair of an albino red dragon, which was something I stole out of uh, an old dragon magazine issue, which I thought was awesome because they prepared for... Uh, fighting a white dragon, but it was an albino red dragon. So that was wow. super fun on my side. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the sword, of course, because we were younger and I made it up, um, it was sentient, but you had to bond with it. And if you weren't strong enough to bond with it, it just turned you to ash immediately. Wow. So if you picked it up, the first time you picked it up, you had to make a constitution save. And if you failed it, you're dead. That's it. Um, he passed it which was great because he would have thrown a fit because he was eight years old and that was his beloved character. <laughs> but as young children do, he lost it afterwards in an arm wrestling competition at a tavern. He was extremely distraught about that, but the person he lost it to picked it up, failed their saving throw, and turned <laughs> into ash. <laughs> so it worked out. <laughs> and that began his lucrative 
card sharping career. As... <laughs> I don't remember what it did. I, I, I think it was flaming too. And it, I don't remember what plus it was or anything like that, but he carried that thing the whole time. My takeaway would have been this item has clearly chosen me. <laughs> Anyone else who tries to own it will be destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Because basically. it likes me that much. Probably not going to come as a surprise to most people that I really like the weird magic items. Um, one of my favorites in AD&D has always been the Wand of Wonder, because every time you use it, something different happens. It's not that I want to make games I run goofy or funny, but... I just find items like that to be far more interesting, especially mm-hmm. when you're not quite sure what they're going to do. It, it keeps magic fresh for me. And, you know, sometimes someone is going to create something that other people think is pointless. You know, look at all of the various inven- inventions and patents that people have come up with over time. Some of them are obviously really great and useful, and others of them leave you wondering, what was that guy even thinking? Oh, why would you patent this? This is ridiculous. Oh, like <laughs> that patent in the 1860s, the alarm bed. Yes. You know that you set the alarm, and when the alarm goes off, the bed throws just, you out, tumps you out, tumps you out <laughs> onto the floor. Somebody patented that. They thought it was awesome. You know, so, and that's kind of how I feel about some of the really weird magic items you come across in a game. You know, somebody created that, and for whatever reason, they thought it was a great idea. I could buy that, especially the the iconic Mad Wizard. I mean, yeah, yeah. times out of ten, that madness is going to be homicidal, but there's always that 10%. But, you know, going to your normal quote-unquote, magical items, I guess. One of my favorites is always the figurines of Wondrous Power, you know, like Carl mentioned earlier. And what's great about them is that you can easily make your own using any Mm -hmm. animal, any insect, whatever, and you can tailor it to be as powerful or as weak as you need for the kind of campaign you're running. Um, so you can just use the stuff that you know comes straight out of the book, or you can make your own. And making your own is super duper fun. Um, I had made up a cat version, uh, kind of like the Onyx Dog, but it does even less than the Onyx Dog because it's a cat. And <laughs> um, so I called it the Jasper Cat. And when you activate it, it becomes a normal-sized domestic cat. And it'll have markings similar to the piece of Jasper that it had been carved from. So they can all look a little different. Um, like the Onyx dog, it's got a, an, an average intelligence and it can communicate with you in common. It's got dark vision. And while it obeys its owner, it doesn't have a problem with arguing or negotiating with them about its instructions. So if the cat thinks that you've asked it to do something stupid, it will obey, but it'll probably tell you all about it first and, you know, try to convince you that, you know, maybe you should do something else, something that's easier for the cat or doesn't involve it getting its feet wet or stuff like that. 
Um, we'll maybe ask random party members for bits of their food, you know, cat stuff. <laughs> you know, and 2% of the time, you'll get a figure that will also be able to transform into a tiger once a day. But, you know, virtually all of them, you're just going to get a house cat and, you know, it'll do some stuff for you. But it's also got an attitude. Yeah, did you describe it to me as the poor man's familiar? Yeah, it's like a poor man's familiar. Yeah. You know, it's like having a familiar. It can do stuff. It doesn't give you hit points and you can't see through its eyes, but you can communicate with it and it's smart and you'll be able to get it to do some simple tasks for you to help out with recon and stuff. Eventually. Eventually. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about classic monsters and treasures um, because it has, and this is just just something that I think is cool. It has stuff from mythology and history uh, 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 codified and ruled up for castles and crusades, uh, including Excalibur. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, who doesn't want Excalibur? Uh, yeah. Or uh, the Aegis, uh, you know, and just, um, and I guess because of the way the language is coded around uh, uh, OSR and fantasy role-playing games, I didn't realize that the classic Monsters and Treasure um, was stuff from history and mythology. I thought it was stuff from earlier versions of the game. Um, uh, so... I, I just wasn't expecting that, but I'm looking at stuff like Lancelot's ring and the club of Dagda and all this really cool mythological uh, stuff codified for castles and crusades. I haven't seen classic monsters and treasures, so hmm, I have to give it a look. I was about to say, I'd like to put in an honorable mention for deck of many things. <laughs> so in uh, Crusader magazine, number three, I came up with a lot. One of the things that I never liked about Deck of Many Things is they are so powerful. You usually got to wait till at least mid-level before inflicting them on a party. So I made kind of a slightly lower-powered version called the Tarot Arcanum. And that's cool. And it's it it basically uses similar effects, but it's you know lighter. It's not like you know a devil arrives to destroy you, or you get a hundred thousand gold pieces, or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more like 10,000 or 5,000 and you maybe get a plus for the next game month and you know, stuff like that. And I, I assume it's based on tarot cards. Yes. Um, I don't use the full court suits, um, but I do use like the, the King queen page and I give a, a conversion. If you want to use regular cards or just d roll dice for it. And you know, it's got lots of, yeah, I mostly because it's a lot of fun because some are good, some are bad. And I, I've never run into a party that never wanted to at least draw one to see what happened. I mean, there's always like, like Jesse was saying, there's always that guy who just <laughs> magic cards. Give me five of them. <laughs> you know? I'm feeling lucky. lucky. That sounds oh. awesome. Carl, your brother that had the cursed item that felt invincible, if you paired mm -hmm. him with a deck of many things. Mm. <laughs> In the world. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our take on Treasure and RCNC games and other games that we've played. Um, 
We'd love to hear from listeners. What is your take on treasure? Do you hand out a lot? Do you hand out a little? Are you stingy? Do you let people know what potions they are? We'd love to hear from you. You guys got to say bye. Oh. <laughs> I think that's how it works anyway. Oh, okay. Bye. Bye. Free arc. Some games may change, but the castle's Crusade Siege engine remains the same. Have you guys ever created your own magic items or are there magic items in the CNC book that you really like? Yes. I know that's very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Tell oh, us yeah. about them. <laughs> <laughs> the Yes Man podcast. Where <laughs> yes, he's, not gonna, gonna he's not gonna he's not gonna cater to our whims, okay? He already said <laughs> <that's> right. <laughs>